Thank you. Yes, please do pray for me because I, we're jumping into some Old Testament history and you can't get a bigger contrast between that and just sitting here and letting the waves of worship kind of flow over you and the Holy Spirit just coming and going like like the tide. I've been to the seaside too much recently, obviously, but it was just sitting there uh, and just feeling that move backwards and forwards and, and the Holy Spirit just there and thinking... I've got to come and talk about some dry history. Well, it's not going to be dry history. We very much pray. Um, so just to help you, and rather than go through lots of, of dry history and so on and so forth, there are some little sheets, if I could hold that one up. So for those of you who, who don't have electronic devices and so on, there is some paper for you to pick up. For those of you who'd rather read this electronically, um, there are these little cards with a, with a tiny earl, uh, and a QRL uh, and everything if you're into that kind of stuff. So one way or the other, you should be able to pick up that little sheet. What can I say? Sorry, I did not post it on Instagram or any of those things. But um, So I wanted just to kind of put on this sheet um, the background, the biblical background of who Jacob is. Because, do you know what, if I started to talk to you about Jacob, I wonder if you would immediately know exactly where he sits. Yeah, well, you might know the, you might know the songs, but, but where are we? We're, we're about um, 1,700 or so years BC, so that's where we are historically, uh, and this is where we are in, in the story of the Bible, because I think this is really important. We're at a time before Moses, so what does that mean uh, for law, and what does that mean for worship? We're at a time before all of those things. So what is happening and what is going on? And more than that, more importantly maybe, what is God trying to teach this nation that he is building, the very, very beginnings of the nation of Israel? What is God doing? Let's just read. And this is the wonderful start to the story of um, Jacob, which takes up nearly half of Genesis. It's got to be fairly important, hasn't it? And this is about his birth. So I'm turning to um, Genesis 25, starting at verse 19. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac. And Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Paradarum, sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. That's all there on your sheet. <laughs> And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer. And Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her. So there's more than one. And she said, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb. And two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins within her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out, holding his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old. When, when she bore them. When the boys grew up, 
Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, and Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. And I guess that gives you a little hint of the trouble that is to come. Little bit of, of, of rivalry there, little bit of, of favoritism. And this is going to be a little bit of theme as we go through. We're going to look at how trouble affects Jacob's life, his own life, his own struggles, but also life as he goes on, and what that means to us today. So my question for you right at the very beginning of this is, how do you react when trouble comes, when difficulties come? Are you one of those who buckles down and and, and tries to tough it out? Do you run around like a headless chicken? Do you retreat into yourself? Or do you maintain a quiet confidence that God is in charge and look for his lead? Do you blame yourself? If I've got this trouble, I must have messed up somewhere. God is punishing me. Or do you know that troubles and difficulties are a part of life? It's hard to be reflective about these things and answer these questions for ourselves when we're in the middle of trouble or difficulties. So maybe when we're not is a good time to think and talk and reflect. Maybe when things are not quite so fraught, that's a good time. So let's look at the trouble that Isaac and Rebecca have with their boys. From the start, life with them is challenging. God's word to Rebecca speaks of two nations, and how often do two nations get along? And this heel grabbing, Jacob, Jacob grabbing Esau's heel, that speaks of one grasping for what the other has. And this prophecy that the older will serve the younger, I don't know about you, but if we have any kind of understanding of patriarchy and lineage and all those kinds of things, especially uh, in, in early days, that is not a good recipe for harmonious family life or what is going to happen when those two boys are adults and beyond. Why should it be like that? Hang on, God, you're in control. We've just sung it. Why should it be like that? Why didn't you make it, Father God, so that everything was good? And everything went smoothly. And one brother loved the other. And mum and dad loved both boys exactly the same. Wouldn't that have been a better way to start a nation? Wouldn't that have worked so much better? Wouldn't that have solved so many problems that come up? And maybe that leads us then to answer the question as we look through these stories. Who is in control? Is it God or is it man? Let's look kind of briefly at this first section of what happens as the boys grow up. And if we look into Genesis 25, 29 to 34, we see this wonderful story of how Jacob gets Esau's birthright. And it tells us something about the two boys. It tells us something about the two young men. What kind of man is Esau? He comes in from the fields. Sorry, sorry. He, he comes in and, and, he's, and he's hungry. 
And he's thinking only of the immediate, only of his stomach. Is he perhaps a little bit of a moody teenager? There's this quote, I'm dying of hunger. <laughs> it's What is going on here? Jacob is quiet, used to dwelling in tents. He's more reflective. And he's thinking maybe of the future. He's looking to what's ahead. And so he says, yeah, you can have some of this soup. You can have some of this stew. Just give me your birthright. And Esau says, yes. I don't know whether he thought it was a joke. I don't know whether he thought, well, that'll never happen. But he says, yes. Really important. What is this, this, what is this birthright? It's about the lineage. It's about the inheritance. It's about the double portion. We're not talking about some small potatoes here, which is what he had in his stew, maybe. Uh, although, of course, they weren't discovered till much later. He, uh, we're talking about something really big. And Esau doesn't really seem to give it very much regard. But Jacob's got his eye on something else. Then there's this little interlude. Um, between the next issue between Jacob and Esau. And in this interlude in, in Genesis 26, right at the very beginning, God confirms the Abrahamic promise, but now confirms it to Isaac. Does this now put a different light on what this birthright is that Jacob has now obtained? How God is going to bring forth not just a nation, but nations out of Abraham now out of, well, it's going to be Jacob, isn't it? Now um, out of Isaac. Something bigger is going on here. God is doing a big, big thing. So, and we also see a little bit of story that tells us something maybe of what the family is like. Do you have family traits in your family? Do you have, you know, some some people in, maybe in your family are very intelligence, maybe some are very witty, Um, maybe some make the same mistakes as their parents did. Um, There's a lot of this going on in this story as well. We read, um, you know, that that Isaac lies to Abimelech, the the king of Philistine, about who his wife is. No, no, that's not my wife, that's my sister, thinking, you know, well, if he thinks that's my wife, I'll be in trouble. Um, and it gets him into trouble because actually Abimelech tries to sleep with his wife, thinking it's his sister. This is exactly what happened um, you know, with Abraham. He did the same thing. There's, there's the, a family trait of, 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 of deceit and lying, uh, but also willing to, wishing to protect oneself rather than trust in God for what's going on. A little bit of an interlude there. and This gives us a picture of what family life is like. Then, the next little trick that um, Jacob plays. Well, it's it's Jacob and and mum, Rebecca, really. And this is in the whole of chapter 27. A long story. I'm not going to read it all all through. So, long story short, Rebecca, mum, plots with Jacob, the son, to deceive Isaac, dad, into giving the younger son... Um, Jacob, who's Rebecca's favorite, his paternal blessing as if he was the first son, Esau. This double blessing that comes to the oldest son, the firstborn. 
And so there's this cheating going on, this plotting, uh, and it all comes to... It, it's all very EastEnders. It's all very uh, soap. It really is. You should read it. It, it. It's great fun. If anybody thinks the Bible is boring and there's no there's no kind of sex and violence in it, I don't know which bit you've read, um, there's there's plenty of, of, of family cheating and, and, and all kinds of stuff going on here and, and violence. What on earth is happening? Is God not capable of seeing his word come to fruition? Does he need their help? Is it like, you know, Rebecca is seeing, or Jacob is seeing, well, this is what God said even before I was born, but, hey, I'm still the youngest son, so we'd better make this happen. Is that what's going on? Or is it that God sees all of this story and knows what is happening, knows what these people are like, and yet is still able to use what's happening in a, a, a fallen kind of family, if you like. Even though they know God and they love God, he's still going to use them to build his nation. And they're going to learn some really important things along the way. Now, the result of, of these things, especially the whole issue of the blessing, because this is the real biggie, um, is there's this, this enmity, this division, this anger between the brothers, Esau and Jacob. And Jacob has to flee. Remember, he's the quiet one. He's not the sporty, hunting-type guy. He's the, the guy reflectively sitting in his tent. He does a runner. Um, he goes off somewhere else, and, and, and mum, Rebecca, kind of tells him where to go. So there's this, this anger. Jacob has to flee. Esau receives a, a, a prophecy of his own, and his future is predicted to be bleak. He's going to live by the sword. There's going to be this ultimate battle with his brother. Uh, you see that in verse 40. Where is God's plan now? Is it, is it in tatters? Is it in a mess? Let's step back just a little bit. Because when we take these stories... We shouldn't really look at them in isolation. We need to understand that God has a plan that stretches throughout time, from beginning to end. Do you remember a few years ago, we had a teaching series called The Story, which started at the beginning, went through chronologically right through to the end, and we repeatedly looked at what God's big picture story was, as well as the little story that was happening before our eyes. Father God, this is the big picture, Father God has determined that he is going to provide salvation through a nation. That nation will be called Israel. We'll hear a little bit more about the word and the name Israel later on in this series. Along the way, he is going to make a gradual revelation of his purpose, his plan, and his love. But the nation, indeed, you know, the, the nation, the people corporately and also individually will journey with him. And along the way, they will grow. They will experience his love. They will come to know him, come to know God and come to have faith in who he is and what he says. They're going to live imperfect lives until the perfection of salvation comes. And it doesn't stop there. The story arc continues. Is this familiar in your life? Do you know a time in your life when, when things were, were not as they are now? 
Maybe you didn't know God the way you do know him now. Maybe before you were saved. Maybe before you met Jesus as a real person through through the word, through spiritual revelations. However, you came to know him intimately. Was it a struggle? Was it a fight? Was it a battle? Did something change when salvation came into your life? That is the big story arc picture. Because we can sometimes think that living the Christian life might be easy. We can sometimes think that actually all this blessing that we're supposed to receive means that actually I can just kick back and it'll be fine and everything will be good. And all and riches of heaven will pour into my life and my bank account. Uh, and all of these things will be great. But that's not what Jesus said. John 16, 33, he says, In this world you'll have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. So we know, like Jacob, we're going to experience troubles and difficulties, opposition, challenges of all different kinds in our lives. Some of us know those things. It may be in health, physical or mental health. Some of us knows knows those things in terms of, of strife, maybe within our families and struggle of that kind. Maybe we've had to had a had a struggle in our life to to find an education. Maybe we've had to struggle in our life to to find somewhere to live, to find a spouse or not find a spouse, all of those kinds of things. Trouble, difficulty of different types. But Jesus says, I've overcome the world. In Romans 5, right at the very beginning of the chapter, Paul says something. He's been talking about justification by faith. Key word, faith. Make sure faith sits there in your mind. Justification by faith. He says, therefore, so this big explanation of the preceding chapters, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We can all kind of do that, can we? Rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Wow! Maybe we have a a, a vision, a picture, or some kind of inner understanding that there is, is glory, that God is glorious, that Father God is far and above all of, of what we see or know or experience on this earth, and we can have faith in him. And that's great, and therefore, isn't life wonderful? Not only that, continues Paul. But we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. There we go. If you thought... How's Tony going to bring this round to the fact that it's Pentecost today? Here we go. We don't have to see the Holy Spirit as a sideline. The Holy Spirit is the third part of the Trinity. The Holy Spirit has been given to us as God's love has been poured into our hearts. But there's this process that Paul talks about. 
that we can rejoice in our sufferings. Who finds that one easy? Good. Because I'd like to know how. Um, We can rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces endurance. I don't know about you, but that's not the first thought that comes to my mind when I'm having trouble, when I'm struggling with something, when things seem to be against me, uh, when when some, nothing goes right. And I'm thinking, oh yeah, this is really good. This is, this is producing some endurance in me. No. <laughs> and that endurance then produces character. Well, we can look back and see, do you know, I struggled through that time and yeah, I've been changed and God has, has grown me and the depth of, 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 of my nature and character has been grown through those times of trouble. But we don't see it in there. And character produces hope. That's interesting, isn't it? Character produces hope. Hope is one of those things that, yes, we can have, but it actually, it's something that can grow. So uh, a simple hope we might have. Oh, yeah, I really hope that actually at the end of time it's going to be good and, and, and God will... We can actually see that grow because of seeing God at work in our lives through struggles, seeing God produce some endurance in us as we continually go back to him and continually say, Father God, what is going on? As we continue to exercise faith and walk the walk that he's brought us to. And then character comes. And those are some of the hardest journeys of all, maybe. Because character is a really deep thing. But that character produces hope. And then we know. We know that we know that we know who God is. And how he works in our lives. Because he's journeyed with us. And we've known him in all of those things. I've not put any of my things through. Setting the scene. Whose birthright. God's promise. The double blessing, all of these are part of the the, the struggle at the very beginning of Jacob's life. And the result, this real problem, this enmity there is between the brothers. Jacob runs away, but Esau's future is looking very bleak. Trouble is something that Jesus says we're going to have. So if there's anything in the Bible which helps us to understand the nature of trouble and what God might be doing, we should pay quite clear attention. We should pay quite clear attention to that. And what is God saying? God is saying, have faith. In these early, early steps of the beginning of God's plan. So Abraham, big story. Isaac, big story. And now Jacob, the continuing of the story. God is laying foundations in the nation from which is going to come salvation. And the most important foundation, the most important lesson that they are learning at this time is to live by faith. Abraham had to learn to live by faith. Abraham and Sarah made exactly this journey. They had to trust God to protect them 
against Abimelech. They had to trust God for the birth of a nation, for the birth of Isaac. Isaac and Rebekah had to learn about faith. They had, again, also to trust God for protection from Abimelech. They had to trust God about this whole issue of who was going to be over who in their children, their two boys. They had problems with favorites. And actually, do you know what? If we look a little bit further ahead, if you know your Bible, you know that that Jacob has some problems with favorites amongst his children. Have they learned it yet? No, they haven't. But this is key for us, that we understand that actually we're called to live by faith. When trouble comes, we're called to live by faith. I don't know what lessons you've had in that area. I've had various lessons in that area. Um, Roy was talking about finances last week and immediately came to my mind a big lesson that I had to learn. Uh, And it was a a time when interest rates would have made your eyes water. You think mortgages are tough now. Interest rates of 17.5%. Some of you are looking at me with big smiles because you've been through that as well. And it was hard. And I thought I had a reasonable job and this, you know, a a professional job with a good salary and, but why was everything such a struggle? Why was it so hard? And I'm looking at my house, very nice house, thank you very much thinking, yeah, but it needs new windows. You know, some cavity wall insulation would keep it a little bit warmer during the um, during the winter. Uh, and then we had leaks in the roof and all kinds of things. And I'm thinking, I haven't got a spare penny to look after my house and look after my home. And we had some debts as well. Not huge, I have to say, but enough to say we can't borrow any more. And I spoke to a really, really good Christian friend of mine, a really wise man, uh, a, a man of faith, uh, younger than me as it happened, but, you know, a, a, a man who was successful in business as well as in, in the Christian faith. And I said, I don't know what to do because this needs to be done. And yet the answer seems to be borrow money, but I really don't want to do that. And he said, no, do not borrow money. He said, my guidance to you is seek God. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. And all these things will be added to you. I said, well, yeah, I've, I've kind of done that journey a few times and it's not easy. He said, no, it's not easy. But this is the way forward. I don't believe, he said, I don't believe that God wants you to get further into debt. And so I thought, yeah, that's right. I don't believe that either. And so God, you've got to do something. I, I don't know what it is you're going to do, but you have to do something. And so we prayed, and we didn't borrow money, and we prayed, and we looked at our situation, didn't change, and we prayed, and we looked at our situation, and it didn't change, and this went on for some months. Now, this was the days when many of us had um, endowment policy mortgages. Do you remember those? Uh, and it basically meant you never, ever, ever, ever paid off your mortgage, but kept kind of putting some money into investment and hoped that after 25 years it would pay back and you'd all be okay. But you also have to remember at this time, in the good old 90s, people were saying, oh yeah, it's not going to work. 
You know, this is the end of the 90s. It's, it, it's not going to work. Things aren't, you know, finances aren't doing what we thought they would do back in the 80s when you started doing this stuff and it was all money, money, money. Now things are a little bit more difficult. And so we're thinking, gosh, we've got this millstone of a mortgage around our neck. And then Janice picks up a stupid free newspaper in a local supermarket. And, and do you ever read those things? I don't. But I don't know. We, I was just looking at it just for something to do, probably over breakfast or something. And there's this little tiny, teeny-weeny advert that says, we'll buy your endowment mortgage off you. I'm thinking, really? So I kind of got in contact with them. And it was like, gosh, yeah. They'll buy my endowment mortgage off me. And the money they'll, they'll buy it off for will, will pay a lot of this off and do that. And we'll have to remortgage, but we'll now have a mortgage where we pay it off properly. And we'll have money in the bank, not a debt. And this seemed to be like something really good. And it just felt like, yeah, this is the way, because it was changing us from a kind of negative debt-ridden sense to something where we still have a mortgage, but we have something to draw on, some savings. And that had always been a difficulty. I knew that saving was good. And if you came on a cat money course, I'd tell you saving was good. Uh, but we'd never actually had any. So we did this. And up until the money dropped in our bank account, I was like, is this a scam? Do you know those things go through your mind, don't they? Is this a scam? What have I done? Have I just thrown everything away? But there was just this understanding that God was saying, no, I've done this for you. And it worked. And ever since that time, we've had a situation where, yeah, okay, we've had mortgage and so on and so forth, but we've had some savings. And it was like God moved us from a a place of, of feeling we were in poverty to a place where we felt like we had riches. And I still do not understand it. I, st- I can do the maths and look at it, but I still don't understand how that changed around. Now, I'm sure the company made profit out of our endowment policies, but what it did was it, it released us from a poverty mentality, and we understood something of being of living in, you know, not excess, not riches, but living in freedom, from underneath that debt, which just never, ever seemed to change. Lesson. Live by faith. Don't try to do it my way. Don't try to do it the Jacob way of of making stuff happen. Don't try to do it the Jacob and Rebecca way of cheating on other people. But do it by the way of faith. I think this is what the nation of Israel is learning very early on, to live by faith. So Jacob needs to have some faith. Abraham and Sarah needed to learn that. Isaac and Rebecca certainly needed to learn it. But they are all learning together. And now here's Jacob, and this is his journey. There's some application to this. Does God need my help? That's a very wide and deep-ranging question. Does God need my help for his plans to come to fruition? Does God need my help for our futures and the promises he's made to come about? I guess we can answer that in different kinds of ways. We can say, well, I have some kind of responsibility 
to make it happen. Yeah, I've got some responsibility. I have. But not to make it happen. We might think, well, maybe my role is to watch and serve. Watch and see what God is doing and move with him. Or maybe I need to see that I've got to stay close to God. Stay close to the Lord and respond to what the Holy Spirit is saying. Have faith that what God has said will come about. I have a role in that, but I need to hear what God is telling me to do each step along that way. God spoke to me um, many, many decades ago about church leadership. And it was a number of decades before that came about. I had a lot of little steps to do along the way. And sometimes I was way over here from what God was doing. And other times he would draw me back and I would get back on his road. People would give me um, encouraging words about God is doing this, God is doing that. And, and, and we'd like, yeah, but... And I'm a fix-it kind of a guy. I like to mend stuff. I like to put things right. Uh, and so it, you kind of itch to get out there and do stuff. I don't know, dads. I can speak, it's, it's, it's going to be Father's Day next week, isn't it? Dads, maybe I can speak to you more than mums. When your children have a problem, what do you want to do? You want to put it right, don't you? Don't you want to put it right? If your children are sick, wouldn't you like to just go, fix it? When your children are struggling with their exams, wouldn't you just like to say, yeah, do you know what? There you go. All sorted. When they're, when they fall over, break their knees or whatever, you, you hug them. But you just want it to be right and fixed. That is what it's like to be a dad, I'm sure. That's what's like, Father God's given that in us, but I can't fix everything. I can't fix, I couldn't fix it for my kids to do their exams right. They had to work at it. All these kinds of things. You know, if you come, if you come to me with a pastoral problem, I can pray with you. I can stand with you. I can encourage you. But I can't always put it right. I might be able to give you some help here and there, but I can't actually always mend stuff. And that leaves a bit of a hole inside of me. I want to fix things. But I also have to learn that, do you know what? I need to hear what God is doing. I need to pray in the right way. I need to do the things that I can do into those situations and encourage you to find God's solution. So what is the nature of faith? Oh boy, we could discuss this forever. What is the nature of faith? For me, it's about living in the flow of the Holy Spirit, trusting in God's word to us. That's that's God's word in the Bible. That's, that's, God's, that's God's living word through prophecy, what God says through the Holy Spirit, and remain firm in what he has said, growing in hope and character as I endure through suffering. That is living faith in my book. And then there's the biggie question. What do troubles mean? What do troubles mean? Troubles do not mean that God is punishing us. Jesus said, you're going to have trouble. Okay? He said that to his followers. There's going to be trouble. But be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. The situation is this. The world is fallen. 
There are problems in the world. The enemy, even though Jesus is victorious, even though Jesus sits at the right hand of Father God and everything, everything, everything in this earth is under his feet, there's still trouble in the world because the enemy is not lying down about it. And so even though salvation has come, it's not kind of almost like worked its way through the whole pudding, as it were. And so we have to understand then that this world is fallen and we're going to have trouble. But how we live in it reflects where our faith really is. Plus, it speaks to a world around us. The nation of Israel was being raised up from which God's salvation would come, but also raised up as an example to all of the other nations around it. There were some things happening through the nation of Israel that would set the world alight with, what on earth is this all about? An easy one. You've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That's what the world was like at that time. In fact, it was worse than that, because if you happened to injure or hurt a prince then it wouldn't be just one tooth from you, it'd be the whole family would be gone. The revelation of the law through Moses was that every single person has the same value. This was revolutionary. God is doing some amazing things. And so what God does in our life, as we live out faith in him, we become an example to others of God's promise. We become an example to others of how God wants to pour his love into their lives. If there's threats of redundancy at work, we can do what everybody else does and run around like headless chickens. We can throw our hands up, woe is me, what is going to happen? We can, all of those issues. Now I know we have to deal with those things ourselves. And we can stand firm in the faith that my God My heavenly father loves me, and he is in control. I might not see the answer today, but I can trust in him. So just to kind of bring this all to a close now, as Jacob goes through these times of trouble, let's look for the growth in faith that's happening in his life. In each of these sessions, there'll be a word from God there'll be a word from God in which he can walk, in which he can live. The word from God in this one is this promise of nations. A promise of nations. Yes, there's a word about who's going to be above who and so on. But actually, there's a promise of nations. And how Jacob starts to walk in that is going to be an issue over the next two weeks. Let's just close. Father God, We thank you that you have not left us bereft. Even now, in this age, Lord Jesus, you're there with the Father. You've sent the Holy Spirit to live within me, within each and every one of us. To empower us, to strengthen us, to comfort us. Holy Spirit, where would we be without your gentle words into our lives? We just thank you and bless you, almighty God. We thank you for Jesus, our salvation. We thank you for your compassion. And we thank you for the Holy Spirit who walks alongside. 
But Lord, we want to turn to you in faith. In times of trouble in our life, we want to turn to you in faith. Not not some washy kind of, I don't know, it'll be all right in the end, but a true faith which grows, a hope which grows, endurance which grows as our character grows as we journey with you. Lord God, that is the life we want to have. Father, be with us this week. Jesus, be with us this week. Holy Spirit, be with us this week. Each and every one of us, whatever trouble we face, whatever difficulties we face, whatever joys we're rejoicing in, we want to share them with you and know your word into those things. Thank you, Lord, that that's your promise. Amen. Amen.